28 years old. <laughs> Some of you are saying, oh, be 28 again. <laughs> and yet here I am feeling like, wow, 28. I remember whenever I was a kid, just amazed and blown away every time my oldest siblings first made it to 21, then to 25, to 30, thinking that was old. But here I am at 28. <laughs> maybe it happened to you later, maybe it happened to you earlier, but sometimes don't we start asking ourselves, am I accomplishing everything I need to accomplish? Is my time here on earth getting smaller, and am I wasting it, or am I using it wisely? Am I doing everything that God wants me to do? Because when we look at the call of the disciple, namely, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, lay down his cross, and follow me. Mark 8.34 Sometimes when I look in the mirror of my life, I wonder... Am I denying self? Am I laying down my life? Is my life being hard, or is, but is it being right? And am I doing everything that God wants me to do? Maybe this sermon will push you as much as it pushed me. <laughs> but I really want you to love Jesus. <laughs> love the strong love Jesus, not just the hugs and muffins Jesus. <laughs> I want you to Love him in a reverential fear, not a teddy bear, grandfatherly figure type Jesus. I want you to see how great and how awesome, and I like this word, how untamed Jesus is. And how much you and I always need to be growing in obedience. I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 15. We're going to finish what many manuscripts stop at, Mark 16 verse 8. So we're going to go Mark 15, 40 to chapter 16, verse 8. That's not the entirety of the book of Mark. We'll talk more about that next week. But I invite you to stand with me in honor of reading the Lord's Word. We'll be in Mark 15. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking from the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? 
And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Heavenly Father, we, I, desperately want to hear your voice. I long to hear you speak to all of us. Pray for your for you to be gracious and loving as you always are and pour out over this congregation, this gathering today. And that we might draw closer to you, that we might love you more, but also reverentially fear you more. Desire to be more like your son Jesus. Desire more of you in our lives. Father, we thank you for your greatness and your holiness. And we thank you that you have given us the grace to, and the privilege to serve you. Father, get me out of the way and say what you would desire to us. We're thirsty for you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm. May be seated. Do you ever feel distant from God? Wonder if sometimes we don't know what distance is because we don't have the reference point of what a close walk with Jesus is to even know when we're distant. Maybe we've always been distant. If you don't know this yet, the distance between you and God is more than likely not his fault. (laughs) It's your fault. It's my fault. Because if we're not praying or if we're not in his word daily, then how do we expect to maintain a relationship? If Christy and I are ever distant, are we talking to one another beyond the, has Calvin been changed? (laughs) Did you pay this bill? Have you took the dogs out? Are we doing more than just sharing a house together? Because there are obvious things we can do to personally close that gap. So it is with Jesus. We start again today in our text, 1540. It says, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. The introduction of these ladies uh, allows us a whole slew of questions or observations. The first thing I want to make note is that 41 tells us that they have been with Jesus all along. They were with Jesus in Galilee. They followed him up to Jerusalem. In fact, the words here in verse 41 really designate these gals as disciples. They followed him and ministered to him. Jesus gave the inclusive call to anybody in Mark 8.34, says to the gathering crowds, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Those words, follow me, being the two words that Jesus also told his twelve apostles in the beginning chapters of Mark. He finds them and says, follow me. Here these ladies have been following Jesus, ministering to him. Now, am I saying that these women should have been on all the paintings of the twelve disciples or that the gospel writers should have included their names when they list out the twelve disciples? 
No, I'm saying that while Jesus has 12 apostles and disciples of his that are obvious leadership, but so too are disciples just as committed and loyal, but also just as human as the 12 following Jesus. Among them, these women were 12 disciples whom the Holy Spirit has found them important enough to name them in the scriptures for all of antiquity to know them. But as immediately as we note that they have been with Jesus all along, we might also note that here they are witnessing the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. When absent are the twelve men, or at least the eleven remaining men, or I should probably even say ten men, because the Gospel of John clarifies us that John was there. And so then there might be parts of us that want to champion these ladies, esteem them, you know, oh, look at them, they're more courageous than the men, they're, they're there, they're watching Jesus, they had gumption, more courage than those cowardly disciples who all left Jesus and fled. But right when we say that, we should go back to verse 40 and pick up on a visual cue that Mark often uses to designate spiritual maturity or health. Namely, we're told that these ladies are, quote, looking on from a distance. And this is not unlike Peter, who went further than any other disciples. Peter followed Jesus into the, the courtyard of the high priest. But we were told in Mark, 15, Mark 14, 54, that he followed Jesus also at a distance. And we know that that distance only increased until ultimately Peter denied Jesus and fled. So too we must put this observation into these, in our minds that these women are, yes, there to observe Jesus' death and burial, but are doing so not only at a physical distance, but a spiritual distance as well. We'll see as we read along. So have you ever felt distant? Contrast the distance of these women, spiritually, from the courageous man that Mark talks about next. We read in verses 42 and 43 that when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, that being Friday, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So Mark tells us that this is Friday evening before Jesus was crucified. Mark 15.25 tells us that the third hour, that is about 9 a.m., three hours from sunrise, Jesus was crucified. Verse 34, the ninth hour, that is about 3 p.m., Jesus is crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the following verses tells us that Jesus dies around this point. Depending on the time of the year, many believe it's early April, that leaves about five to six hours at most until sundown, and the Sabbath officially begins. Furthermore, we were told in verse 42 that evening had come. So this means that the time is even less for Joseph of Arimathea to take this body and bury it. And when we come to verse 43, I want to take a few side trails to other gospel accounts to fill some information in about this man, Joseph of Arimathea. And I want to give a little more background, a little more power to Mark's words here, to courage. First, we look at Luke 23, and we see that he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action 
as he was looking for the kingdom of God. So Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the council, a member of the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish authorities. So he either sat through the trials that Jesus was put through, or he heard about it later and he did not consent to them. Now when the high priests tore his garments in verse 63 of Mark 14 and called Jesus a blasphemer, since Jesus had declared himself to be God, and verse 64 tells us that they all, being the Sanhedrin, condemned Jesus as deserving of death, Joseph of Arimathea was among those who disagreed, who did not consent. Jesus had claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus had claimed to be the Savior of the Jews. And and the Savior of everybody. Jesus was ushering in the kingdom of God. The very kingdom that Joseph was seeking. But for Joseph, it's more than just not consenting. Matthew 27, 57, and John 19, 38 tells us that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So John, and again Matthew, out and out tells us that Joseph is a disciple of Jesus. He's answered the inclusive call of anyone who wants to be Jesus' disciple. But he's done it in secret, because he has feared those who have agreed with the high priest, who have plotted and colluded with the Romans to put Jesus to death. Joseph, like Peter before him, allowed his fear to privatize and make secret his discipleship. But now we see that Joseph is going to answer the call of discipleship to lose his life for the sake of Jesus and his gospel, to deny himself, his safety, his reputation for the cause of Christ, to pick up the proverbial cross, because look at the public courage it is that Joseph is taking as he took courage and went to Pilate, and ask for the body of Jesus. This is a public respect being paid to Jesus. He is a rich man. That is, Joseph is a rich man. Joseph is part of the Sanhedrin. Joseph is acting alone. Joseph is approaching the governor of the land, who I'm sure Pilate by this moment is very tired of dealing with the controversy surrounding this Jewish rabbi and the snobbish, jealous, pesky Jewish leadership. (laughs) And lo and behold, one of the Sanhedrin approaches Pilate. And I'm sure Pilate is expecting some other awkward demand dealing with another blow to this man Jesus or his followers. But Joseph of Arimathea is showing himself to be apart from the decision of the Sanhedrin. A fellow supporter of Jesus, so much so, offering his tomb for Jesus. And by Pilate's own decisions, Jesus is surely considered an enemy of Rome as well. Because this is in some ways approaching a governor of a state or a president and asking to have the body of a convicted, controversial, executed insurrectionist so that he might have some respect in his grave, in his tomb. It took courage for Joseph to do that. But then furthermore, we have to assume that the Sanhedrinist community in which big news like this would get around You see, this is Joseph in some ways putting his loyalties and reputation on the line because what will happen when Caiaphas, the high priest, who called Jesus a blasphemer deserving of death, what will happen when Caiaphas hears that one of his own, one of the Sanhedrin, is offering his rich familial tomb to a man that Caiaphas considered a heretic deserving of death? And this heretic 
as it is said, did die. We see that emphatically in these verses, verses 44 through 46. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus, he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out from the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus died. The centurion confirms that Jesus was already dead. Mark and Pilate then refer to Jesus as a corpse when given to Joseph. Joseph wraps him and puts him in a tomb and seals the tomb. The point is, is that Jesus is dead. I want to remind you for the people that are at the cross and at the uh, tomb, that is the women. And Mark is really unashamed and, in fact, very emphatic about this as he lists out the, these women three times. I don't know if you noticed that as we read through it. More so than he's ever listed out all the disciples together. He's only listed out the twelve at one point in time in his script, in his uh, book. But this is amazing that Mark is so open about this because in this culture, women literally did not have the floor in court. <laughs> Their witness was not accepted nor considered worthy to be heard. And so the point is, is if four people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, colluded to write the gospel accounts, if this is all a hoax, namely God in the flesh coming to earth, truly dying, truly rising again, if you wanted your argument to be convincing, don't put women as the primary witnesses of all this. But they all got to tell it like it is. Beyond women seeing Jesus buried, though, we are told that Pilate himself, the centurion who was at the cross interacting with Jesus' body, and obviously Joseph who interacted with Jesus' body, all say that Jesus of Nazareth is 100% dead. This man, Jesus, died. <laughs> and in the hundreds of thousands of reports of crucifixion, there is not one victim of the cross as ever to have been reported to survive. Jesus is no exception. He here is dead. And it was surprising for Pilate, nonetheless, because Jesus died quickly. Many accounts tell us that the victims died slowly, sometimes over a matter of days. But the validity and the truth of this Jesus of Nazareth being dead is attested to, literally, by Roman law. But now we leave the story of the courageous faith of Joseph of Arimathea, and we return to the women who were distantly observing Jesus. So we're going back from courageous faith to distant faith. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This word saw is the same word in verse 40, looking on. And it is a guarded observation. The distance, the hesitance, the I don't want to be too close unless they recognize me as a disciple. Now, maybe if you're like me, you've watched a few movies depicting these events. <laughs> Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus going into a tomb. And the, most movies, if not all the movies that I've seen that depict this very scene of Jesus in the tomb being prepared for his burial, I think, if not all the ones I've watched, depicts these women with Joseph helping him wrap and prepare the body. And that's not the case at all, according to the Bible. Each account that mentions the women at the tomb, I put those accounts on your outlines, depicts them, as Mark does here, watching, but not participating. 
And for Mark, we know that this is a very intentional picture in truth, that the ladies are as reserved and distant as Peter was before he denied Jesus. We read on, when the Sabbath was passed, so this is probably sundown on Saturday, which means the Sabbath is over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. If you read the book of Mark in one sitting, that word anoint might bring a memory or an encounter that you might not quickly recall, but Dean actually preached on it last June. We remember that Jesus was already anointed. Back in Mark chapter 14, and likely about a week and a day prior to this, Jesus was anointed by another woman. And Jesus emphatically and openly says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Jesus was anointed beforehand because these women here are too late <laughs> afterwards. But we give them kudos. We understand their heart. They're, they're coming out of love, out of loyalty and faithfulness to God. But I want you to see that fear is still with them. We read on, and very early on the first day of the week, the first day of the week being Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us? from the entrance of the tomb. This is an underlying reminder to us readers that absent from this act of love are the men. Not just men for men's sake, but Jesus' hand-selected disciples who drank the cup and ate the bread of covenant only a few nights before. Because if eleven men or ten men or even Jesus' inner circle of three or four men were with these ladies, it was quite possible that their question would be answered. But these women are left alone, hoping to just anoint Jesus, but wondering if they have the chance, because of the heavy, immovable stone, is guarding the tomb. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. <laughs> very much irony exploding here. <laughs> they have their first question answered. <laughs> Who's going to move the stone away? But the second question, and the more pressing matter, is what happened? And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. The women were alarmed. The word alarmed is literally out of their senses. Right? Pinch me, this isn't happening. <laughs> Fear kind of going on here. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. Now, this angel is likely speaking into the entire situation, but is also likely speaking to the fear and the dread these women have upon seeing this angel. <laughs> because throughout the scripture, often the first words from angels to humans, no matter the situation, no matter the context of the episode that's happening, are words of comfort. I like what one of my commentaries stated. It says, when the Bible relates divine human encounters... Mortals invariably sense the dread and terror of their position before the Almighty. I love that because I believe it captures what Mark is ending his story on. And what Mark has been trying to relate to his readers, it's this. That what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ is an unstoppable force. Jesus is inexorable. Commentators on the book of Mark will tell you that an overarching theme of Jesus of, of Mark 
is Jesus' authority. He has authority to forgive sins. He has authority over creation, authority over unclean spirits, authority over the Sanhedrin, authority to condemn the temple, authority to question the authority at the temple. And no enemy, no Satan, no human is going to thwart Jesus. No Roman, no Jewish Sanhedrin member, no disciple, no anti-disciple, no persecutor, no weak one in faith, nothing can stop what God is doing. And so yes, when the angels show up at the tomb, the women, the, the ones who have been watching from a distance, who have been afraid to join the proverbial fray, who have been watching from the sidelines, they are alarmed. They are distressed. They have been almost caught red-handed. And they, like you and I, ought to know their position before Almighty God. The angel continues in verse 6, You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Can you swallow that sentence? (laughs) I love the terse, the matter-of-factness of this angel. The angel says that they seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Past tense. We talked about this already in the text. Now an angel verifies to the truth of, as well. Jesus of Nazareth died. He was crucified. And, and the way he says crucified is how people might say drowned or hung. In the ears of the women, the crucified automatically assumes he died in the process. <laughs> but then the angel says he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Friends, here is how I am seeing it. The women were coming, and they had it all figured out. They had their faith and their devotion, their expression of faith, all figured out, all under control. We love Jesus. We miss him. We want to give him a proper burial. Let's go put some spices on him and make sure he's respectfully buried. We'll figure out the stone being moved. But other than that, everything we need and want to do for Jesus It's all in our control. And no, it's not. No, it's not. This word, in verse 6, seek, is a word in the Greek that in all ten of its occurrences in the book of Mark, it always imposes constraints on Jesus. I'm reminded of one of my favorite parts of Mark because it speaks to the preacher in me. (laughs) And that, that is Jesus has this night of healing, just the entire town of Capernaum in Mark chapter 1. The town is literally lined up at his door, and he's just healing people and casting out demons like it's a free lemonade stand. And Mark tells us the next morning that Jesus gets up earlier than the other disciples, and he finds a desolate place to pray. And when Peter and the others, they get up, they come out, and they find Jesus. And Mark 1, verse 37 says, They found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking. The same word as that word seek in our text this morning. Everyone is looking for you. And the reason, it's one of my favorite passages in Scripture, is that Jesus turns the disciples down, and he says, I came here primarily to preach. (laughs) Let's move on to the other towns. But in that story, do you see the constraining motive on the disciples? Everyone is looking for you, Jesus, for you to do what we want you to do. There are more people to heal, more unclean spirits to be cast out. And so the idea I merely want to suggest of these fearful women is that they want Jesus contained. They want Jesus how they want Jesus. 
We were going to come to the tomb. We were safely going to give spices to this man. The Romans are done crucifying him. The Sanhedrin has had their way with him. We want Jesus to ourselves. We want to be left alone with the dead body, pay his proper respects, and be away from all the controversy, all the stigma, just us and Jesus in peace. And the angel says, he is not here in your safe place. And so instead, ladies, of doing what you wanted to do, put spices on Jesus' body, there is a task that God would ask of you, is basically what the angels say. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And this will preach a whole other sermon, so I'm just going to point out that the heart of the mission of the church is go and tell. Go and tell. And unlike any other religion, it's not primarily about a what. It's not about an eightfold path. It's not about five pillars of, of faith or a theology of sacraments or a theology period. It's primarily about a who. At the heart of the faithful witness of a Christian is the testimony that points people to Jesus. Not to a what, but to a who. And again, I want you to see how Mark ends this tale in fear. I've mentioned that the ladies were seeking Jesus and seeking Jesus in their own desire. Namely, they wanted to be left alone peaceably with his body to do their act of devotion. They're alarmed. Jesus is not there, not as they wanted him to be. Furthermore, they're told by the angel, but instead of your spices, there is a task for you. Go and tell. But verse 8 tells us that, and they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Went out and fled. Trembling and astonishment had seized or paralyzed or incapacitated them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Fleeing, seized, shut mouths in fear. Nowhere in there do we see an accomplishment of go and tell. What's most interesting, too, is that some manuscripts in the book of Mark here <laughs> at what apparently is a failure on the part of the women at the tomb. And here's why Mark might have done that. It could be that Mark is saying to the fearful, stumbling Christians under Roman persecution at the time they received this letter, kind of a sympathetic, you see, even at the tomb after hearing of Jesus' resurrection, there were fearful disciples who were not always obedient. Here's how I want to end with this, though, with the same question. And it's the question I started with, and the question we had made mention of is that, have you ever felt distant from Jesus? And the last verse tells us why they are distant. They are afraid. Like all the disciples left and fled Jesus before he died, these disciples here left and fled Jesus after he rose. Why? They are afraid. What are the disciples afraid, though? The same reason you and I are afraid. Jesus has power. And if our Lord and Master and Teacher has power, He's going to call us to do things beyond our control, beyond our expectation, beyond what you and I are comfortable with doing. But here's where I hope you find hope, and it's what I call this sermon. You and I serve and love and put our faith in the inexorable Jesus. I had to look through a thesaurus, and I think that's the word I want. <laughs> Jesus is inexorable. He's an unstoppable force in ministry. He's relentless. He'll get his church with or without your help, but he wants you in the fray. 
He doesn't want you to be a follower at a distance. He doesn't want you to want him in your terms. He doesn't want you to cheer for him on the sidelines. He wants you to deny, deny yourself fully, pick up your cross humbly, and follow him wholeheartedly. And he is inexorable, all-consuming. He's more than worth your while, your joy, your happiness, your satisfaction, your all-consuming fulfillment if you devote your life to him. I'm using a lot of big words that some of you might appreciate. But for those of you who appreciate illustrations and stories, I want to end with a chunk of a book that I think speaks to what I'm getting at. It's C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair. I hope most of you are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, but if you're not, let me give you a little bit of context. In the series, Narnia is an imaginative land of talking animals that Lewis uses as a picture of the kingdom of God. And Jesus, being the Lion of Judah, is portrayed as a lion. And I want to end with part of this story where a character named Jill meets this lion not knowing who he is, if he's good or evil. And Jill is really thirsty. (laughs) And the stream that she finds to drink from happens to be near this lion. There's another character named Scrub that had spoken to Jill about the land of Narnia, so that's why we hear his name. Let me read this to you. If you're thirsty, you may drink. They are the first words Jill had heard since Scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. And the voice said again, if you are thirsty, come and drink. And of course she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in that other world and realized it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? (laughs) said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if, if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Did you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare to come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. That's bread. Heavenly Father, sometimes we, we love to serve you in ways that are convenient and comfortable for us. We find ways we think that will make you happy, make you smile on us. It is a a noble desire, but ultimately, you even have say over how we are to serve you. Father, the sad thing is, is that the ways we serve you often end up getting us thirsty, whereas there is a stream of water that 
satisfies the soul. And that's serving you wholeheartedly, being your disciple as you want us to be. And so I just pray that as we have studied today, that we would see where we need to repent of. And that we would truly ask you, what would you have us do? And that we would find ourselves saying yes to you. We know that that's a hard yes to say, so we ask for your Holy Spirit's power to do so. Because we don't want to be thirsty anymore. We want to live life the way you want us to live. Father, we ask and we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.